This is the second part of a teaching we started last week. The New Covenant and the transition from Sabbath to Lord's Day. That's the subject. Romans 14, 1 to 9. Hope you always have your Bible in one form or another in church. 14, 1 of Romans. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the service of another? And that question, by the way, who are we to judge? You'll hear Christians say that in the most uh, inappropriate settings, where someone denies some crucial point of doctrine, and, and someone will point it out where Paul says he was set for a defense of the gospel. When the gospel is attacked, Paul said that Christian people need to be able to stand up and defend it. So, so um, when you have people coming up and, and they're, and they're uh, denying the resurrection of the dead or denying the Trinity or denying key doctrines without which there is no such thing as Christianity... And someone will say, well, no, that's not right. And then some Christian for sure was going to say, well, who are we to judge? That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about side issues, non-essential matters. Don't quibble with someone in this church because they have a different view of celebrating trick-or-treating on Halloween. Don't fight over stuff like that. That's what he says. That's not your job, Paul says. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again. That he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. That's a beautiful thought, that last one. He's Lord of the dead and of the living. He's still, he's still my dad's Lord. Your grandpa's Lord. Your lost loved one. They're not separated from their Lord. There's one family, Paul says in Ephesians, on whom heaven and earth is named. So we don't see them. There's that distance, but it's one family. All together, one Lord. There were two key background points in last week's teaching. It's online. You can look it up, watch it, or the notes, or whatever. And the first was, the Sabbath, as we have it described in the creation account and the giving of the commandments, it was set apart as a reminder. The Sabbath was set apart as a visible witness that there was one true God who, among all the idols... And gods of this world 
there's one who is the actual creator of everything. And the text there was Exodus 28 to 11. This is the reason we talked about this, why we have weeks on our calendars. And then we also saw that the Sabbath was never fulfilled simply by people quitting labor and doing their own thing. And the key text there was Isaiah 58, 13, and 14. The other idea that we unpacked was it wasn't just a day set apart for remembering. It was remembering something specific. And the Deuteronomy text that we talked about was remembering that you were slaves in Egypt and you couldn't get out. And the Lord came and delivered you, not of your own doing, not of your own works, not of your own might. The Lord brought deliverance to you. And then we wrapped up by pointing out how when we come to the Lord's day, this is what we celebrate. A deliverance that comes from our deepest captivity. The deepest bondage from which we cannot extricate ourselves. The bondage to sin and guilt and judgment. And not by our works. We were delivered by a strong arm. So all of that was the theme of last week's teaching. So the number one point from last week was... The foundational significance of the Sabbath was the setting forth of a visible witness that there was one true God who was creator of all things. And then the second point from last week was, after establishing the proportions of one day in seven to know our creator God and become sanctified and transformed by him, that sharpens the Old Testament theme of Sabbath and its development into Lord's Day. That's where we wrapped up. But even those points don't approach the most important things we need to remember when we're pondering the meaning of the Sabbath and its transition into the New Testament Lord's Day. And so today we're going to do points three, Four. Everybody okay with that? All right. So point number three, picking up from last week. All that the Old Testament Sabbath model began find its completion in Jesus Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath. Matthew chapter 12. It's a bit too long to put on a slide, but you can look it up. Matthew chapter 12, 1 to 8 is a fascinating account Matthew records where Jesus talks specifically about himself and the Sabbath. And so it's really germane to what we're looking at today. Matthew 12, 1 to 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, isn't it great that there's just, there's always people around Wanting to criticize what you do. It's a wonderful gift. When the Pharisees saw it. They said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He, Jesus, said to them, have you not read that David, what he did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? And that's true, it was just for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Now, 
Here are the words we need to underline. I'm telling you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What a huge sentence. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus battled with the religious leaders over the Sabbath more than any other single issue. Read the Gospels. Constantly at war over the Sabbath. He healed on the Sabbath. He and his disciples picked corn to eat on the Sabbath. He did good works on the Sabbath. In all these issues, they accused him of breaking the Mosaic law. And here's the important point. He was. He was. Never once did Jesus deny that he was stretching the limits of obedience to old covenant Sabbath laws. None of that is the real issue. The real issue is pressed home by Jesus in his blazing words in that eighth verse, the Son of Man. The Son of Man, pointing to himself, is Lord of the Sabbath. That's the new issue. That's what these Jewish leaders didn't get. Jesus takes the Sabbath and in bold, sweeping, divine, and absolutely majestic words, Jesus says, I own the Sabbath. The Sabbath is mine. It is my day. It has my stamp all over it. The Sabbath has always been a spotlight pointing very specifically to me. I'm the new definition of the Sabbath. It has always been about me. And they didn't know what to say. The Sabbath is forever Christ-centered. You will never understand the Sabbath if you're still thinking it's Moses-centered. You will never understand the Sabbath if you think it is Israel-centered. You will never understand the Sabbath if you think it is temple-centered. No one understands the Sabbath properly until he understands it finds its completion and its focus in Jesus Christ. He is the only one. He alone can say, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Your old covenant wineskins are radically out of date to hold this new Sabbath wine. You see, the term Lord's Day isn't the invention of zealous evangelicals. People heard Jesus say those words. There were witnesses. His followers heard him call the Old Testament Sabbath the Lord's. Jesus is the one who makes the transition. I am Lord of the Sabbath. The name Lord's Day isn't an accident. You will always be a legalistic Sabbath thinker if you just think it's, well, it's my day of pause. It's my day of rest. You need to see it fulfilled, completely fulfilled, consummated 
in the atoning death of our Lord on the cross. The rest of the Sabbath is a rest from works of righteousness. So the Old Testament Sabbath was a temporary pointer to... Here it is. Here it is. The Old Testament Sabbath was a temporary pointer to New Testament salvation in exactly the same way the Old Testament sacrificial system was a temporary pointer to New Testament salvation. It is simply stunning to me how many contemporary books on Sabbath-keeping overlook that fundamental point. The Old Testament is fulfilled... In the Old Testament concept of Sabbath is fulfilled in the Lord's Day in the same way that the Old Testament sacrificial system is fulfilled in the death of Jesus on the cross. We don't butcher lambs anymore. We don't kill goats. We don't break the necks of turtle doves. Why? Well, Jesus came. All that was pointing to Jesus. We don't celebrate the Old Testament Sabbath anymore. Why? Because Jesus came, the rest from labor in the Old Testament was a promise looking forward to the rest from our own works to earn salvation and grace. It's fulfilled in the Lord's day. In the same way that the Old Testament sacrificial laws are fulfilled with the coming of Jesus. Let me read another New Testament text to you that I think needs explanation. John 5, 8 to 17. Jesus said to him, that's the lame man by the pool of Bethesda. Get up, take up your bed, walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. And then John knows how important this is, so he includes this detail. This was... Here's when Jesus did it. And you know, before you reach the end of the story, if you've been reading the Gospels, you read the account, and as soon as you see, now that day was the Sabbath, something in you just goes, uh-oh. This isn't going to slide by. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's a Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. And this guy passes the buck. Well, the man who healed me, he said, take up your bed. God, him, he told me. They said, who's the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. There was a crowd in the place, and afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews, That's great. Tells the Jews, Oh, it was Jesus. I didn't know the guy, and now I know him. It was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And then these strange words that Jesus seems to feel justify his actions. Jesus answered them. So this is what they're bugged about. He's doing this stuff on the Sabbath. How is Jesus going to explain? And he says this strange sentence. But Jesus answered them, My father is working. So this relates somehow to this, this whole Sabbath thing, rest. My father is working until now, and I am 
working. My father is working until now, and I am working. And those, those are fighting words to these Old Testament Sabbath keepers. Jesus says he was working. What does he mean? What does Jesus mean when he says he was working? I think he means this. Now, remember, they're asking about Sabbath. That's the context of the question. Everything has to do with this Sabbath. And I think Jesus means that the Father didn't just sit idle after the six days of creation. He, he rested on the seventh day. He rested from that initial creation. There's a problem, though. Creation has gone amok. God creates. One, two, three, four, five, six. Does the work. Rests on the seventh day. But... We all know that a lot of what was done in those six days has become unglued, messed up. God got up from that Sabbath rest and he began a new work. Not the work of creation, but the work of redemption. He created in six days, rested. We talked about that last week. But he couldn't rest for long because creation has gone foul and fallen. It's broken. It's marred. It's wicked. It's sin-filled. And so now the work isn't creation. It's already here. Now the work is redemption. And Jesus says he is working. His works of healing, restoration, forgiveness are expressions of God's work right now. His redeeming work. This work of redemption, this, this making of a new creation, it found its victory in Christ's death and resurrection. There was a rest, a Sabbath, at the end of the first creation. But that Old Testament Sabbath was only a pointer to a deeper New Testament rest. We now enter into the fulfilled Deeper rest of the completion of redemption. The second work of our creator God. Creation, rest. Redemption, Christ's death on the cross, Lord's Day. Lord's Day. What we're celebrating with the Lord's Day is the rest of redemption. Not of works. No one can boast just like Israel couldn't get out of Egypt without a deliverer, we couldn't get out of our sins without a redeemer. Ephesians. I know this isn't light, breezy stuff. There shouldn't be a Christian alive that doesn't understand why we worship on the Lord's Day and what that relationship is to the Sabbath. Everybody needs to know this. Ephesians 1, 19 to 23. Here are some texts that speak about this rest now that we enter into through Christ's finished work of redemption. That you might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked. Notice this emphasis on, on God's work. 
when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Look at this text, Hebrews. Hebrews 10, 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. See this rest? He sat down at the right hand of God. See that right there? This is what the whole Old Testament Sabbath was looking forward to. It was all about that right there. That's what it was about. Christ's resurrection and ascension mark the completion of God's second work. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? The Father is working now, and I am working. There's this work of redemption that was fulfilled in the cross and resurrection. Christ sits down. It's the fulfillment of the Sabbath reminder of Israel's deliverance in the Old Testament The reason for their Sabbath-keeping, we saw that just by way of review. It's in Deuteronomy 5.15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. What are they supposed to think about on the Sabbath? You were a slave in the land of Egypt. The Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand. Therefore, here's the reason. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Why did he tell them to to keep the Sabbath? He delivered them. He delivered them from their bondage. And we see the fulfillment of that in the way the church has been delivered from her sin and guilt through the finished work of Jesus Christ with his cross and resurrection. And so, the Sabbath is just a shadow. It's just a reminder of the ultimate sign pointing to the ultimate deliverance, the ultimate Sabbath rest of redemption. We don't work to save ourselves. We rest in a finished work of Jesus Christ. We join in the ultimate fulfillment of Sabbath rest, celebrating our deliverance by our mighty, redeeming God. And I would no more go back to a Sabbath rest under the Old Testament concept than I would go back to butchering lambs for atoning for my sins. Done. Done. Church, every time I was watching again this morning, I, have, I pace a little bit before morning service, and then I usually end up in that reception. Why am I telling you this? Don't even look in there. I usually end up in there, and I just kind of pray and think about some things. And once in a while, I look out the door, and it's usually now about three minutes to ten, and you just see this stream, this stream of cars. They're all lined up. They're all waiting, and they just pour in. You should all be here 20 minutes earlier. But they just pour in to the parking lot, one after another after another. I was thinking this morning, every time this parking lot fills up on the Lord's day, even if our minds aren't focused there, every time this parking lot fills up on the Lord's day, we give testimony to the delivering work of our, the Bible calls him, our God and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. And when we walk from our car into this sanctuary while others are sleeping, or shopping, or fishing, or golfing, or visiting with family, we proclaim the reality of Christ's uniqueness in a world full of religious work and moral effort. Church, this is his day because he did the work. Point number four. Each Lord's Day, and this to me is precious, each Lord's Day reminds us of the faithfulness of God to keep all of His promises to His redeemed children. Let me wrap up with this point. So then, and this is interesting because after all that emphasis on the finished work, Sabbath fulfillment, the Old Testament delivering reminder from Egypt, in the fulfillment of our Lord's delivering work from sin on the Lord's Day, the fulfillment, it's strange to see that it's, it's fulfilled and not quite fulfilled. And this is how I want to wrap up this morning. So then, look at these words. There remains, we're still looking for this, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What's that, what, what is that about? For whoever has entered, this is past tense, has rested from his works. This is exactly what I've been saying, see? Whoever has entered into God's rest, this is salvation, has rested from his works as God did from his. So that Old Testament pattern is fulfilled in the way we find our rest in God's grace and forgiveness. And then this, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. There remains a rest. Strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, of course, thinking of the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness because of their disobedience. Didn't get into the promised land. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest. The work is finished but we are not all the way home yet. I think everybody knows what I'm talking about. The new creation is fully purchased, but not fully delivered. Here we are. The Lord's Day, the fulfilled Old Testament Sabbath, is is a day, this day right here, that's that's as full of promise as the Old Testament Sabbath was full of promise looking forward to redemption. And now the Lord's Day where redemption is accomplished is full of promise looking forward to the new creation. This is the future-oriented lifeblood of the whole concept of Sabbath Lord's Day in the Scriptures. It it works like this. Just as the old covenant Sabbath was the promise anticipating the delivering redemption of the new covenant Lord's Day, so the new covenant Lord's Day is the promise anticipating the final deliverance restoration of this entire broken, fallen, restless 
creation. Every Sunday you come into our church, you walk through a world full of tsunamis, earthquakes, terrorism, wars, corruption, refugees, starvation, disease, abortion, homosexuality, heterosexual immorality. Who among us has not in the quiet of his or her own soul screamed, Where are you, God? What are you doing about this? And every Sunday, every Lord's Day, you come into this church and you have to wrestle all over again with your own incompleteness in Christ Jesus. I do. You and I all long for the day John described when we see him face to face in perfect likeness. We will see him as he is. We will be like him. We will see him as he is. We long for the day when we fail Jesus no more. We long for that ultimate, permanent, complete, joy-filled, eternal rest. Every Sunday service, no matter how dull or how ordinary it might feel, every Sunday Lord's Day service whispers into the listening ear, see, I keep all my promises. Just like the Old Testament Sabbath, I kept my promise about your deliverance in Jesus Christ. And my plan isn't done yet. But the day you're celebrating, the Lord's Day, testifies to the completion of the purchase of all of it. That's why we sang, I don't know if you thought about it, it's what we sang in the opening Christmas carol that was, I was so pleased to hear this at the servants' banquet. It so rarely gets said, but you'll see it if you read any good biography of Isaac Watts, you will see that he never wrote joy to the world even thinking about Jesus' first birth. Did you know that? We've adopted it and adapted it in Christmas celebrations. Look at the words next time you sing it. He's not writing about the first coming of Jesus. He's writing about the second coming of Jesus. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace, and he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. That's what Isaac Watts was writing about. He's coming again. So what about our opening question, Pastor Don? Wrap it up. Do just weak Christians, Romans 14, do just weak Christians think the Lord's day is special? Or in the book of Revelation, does the Apostle John call Sunday the Lord's day because he was weak in faith? Is that what Paul was teaching in Romans 14? Not a chance. Not a chance is that what Paul is teaching. We need to think with our whole Bibles. The whole context of Romans 14 deals with foods, diets, 
days, seasons, plural, in which the ceremonial regulations of the Jewish system function, the old covenant system. And we know from the rest of the writings of Paul that he taught in the churches on the Lord's Day, Acts 27. He gave instruction for worship on the Lord's Day, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. But you see, those converting to Christianity from Judaism, as well as a host of other religions, they they came with their own history and their own baggage. These Judaizing believers were the ones Paul called weak in faith, 14.1 of Romans. They kept trying to conceptualize a Sabbath by old covenant theocratic command, like the Pharisees, without seeing it abolished in the death of a great and final deliverer from their deepest bondage, Jesus Christ and his sin-pardoning work on the cross, and all of this apart from any religious works, and they couldn't get their heads around that. And Paul was being firm but loving. Sometimes it takes time to understand all those things. It's not our job to write people off. But apart from its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, Paul knew commitment to Old Testament Sabbath keeping, along with a host of other regulations, was a, was a desperate religious effort clinging to powerless relics of an era made obsolete through Christ's fulfilling work on the cross. And so Paul didn't want to see them squabbling over spiritually lifeless issues. Church, Christ has emptied the legalistic keeping of the old covenant Sabbath. Remember the bright promise of every Lord's day. This is a day of promise. You can't see all the way into it yet, but the same one who completed creation and rested, the one who then completed redemption, Christ's resurrected body being the first sign of a new creation, the one who sat down at the right hand of the Father, that one, he will usher in the full inheritance, that glorious day when there will be nothing but one complete, long, bright eternal, joy-sustaining celebration of our delivering Lord and the new creation that his resurrected body is just the first sign of. Think of, okay, that screen up there, but don't look at me on it. Think of that whole screen up there, and if there was just one little speck the size of a thumbtack up in the corner... That little thumbtack way up in the corner, you couldn't see it from where you're seated. That is the beginning of the new creation. It's Christ's resurrected body. Okay? All of the screen, that's what we're living in. That's where we are. Death, disease, cancer, stress, trials, war, hatred. But up in the corner, there's one tiny speck. The new creation is not something that we need to wonder about. It's already begun. One place, 
where the new creation already exists right now. Do you know where it is? It's the man, Christ Jesus, in a new created body sitting at the right hand of the Father. The man, Christ Jesus. And, and the promise of the resurrection is, I'm going to make everything new. And I'm not asking you just to take it by faith. I'm showing you where I've already done it. And it's going to happen everywhere. And so when we gather on the Lord's Day and we see the fulfillment of the promise of redemption, remember, this day is still holding the promise of new creation. You don't have to secure your own future. Enter into that rest, trusting in the new creative work of our risen divine Lord. Everyone sad? That's a good way to come into church, I would submit to you. That's a good way to come into church. Let's pray.